0: 20 years after I graduated from high school in 1976, um, I was pastor you know a church plant in California, and I got a phone call one night. Uh, uh, I don't know if you've ever had these kind of phone calls. If Somebody from your past calls you, they find you, uh, and they call you, and they're like, do you know who this is? Well, you know, when you're 18, and it's 20 years later, and you're late 30s, there y- your voice changes. You know what I'm saying? I mean, you're just, this, and it's been a, been a lot of years, and so... Uh, this particular person called and said, hey, do you know who this is? I'm like, don't have any idea. Uh, and I said, it's been 20 years. I mean, obviously, you know, your voice is not what it was when we were 18, uh, as you say. And he, and he said, well, let me give you a hint on who it is. He said, uh, you, we used to debate all of the time whether there's God or not. Oh, yeah, this is Craig. <laughs> Craig, you know, typical guy back in the 60s, go to his house, hang out at his house, bedroom, had beads in the doorway, you know, incense burning to cover up the marijuana, Smell uh, and black light posters with Jimi Hendrix playing. Remember those days? I do. Those were my friends. Uh, and so we'd walk to school, and, and we'd we uh, a couple mile walk, um, and it was not uphill both ways. It was flat desert. Uh, and so we we'd we'd walk to school, and we would we would talk. And he was you know he was an absolute atheist. And so we would talk. You know, why do you think there's a god? Why don't you think there's a god? Well, we did this for years. Uh, and he was a good friend of my sister, who was two years older than me. So he graduated in '74. I graduated in 76. So um, when he called me and told me who he was, I'm like, this is amazing. I I can't believe that we're talking after all these years. So I said, "Uh, why are you calling me? You know, you want to debate some more? I mean, now I have biblical education. We can go for broke. Um, (laughs) He said, well, I just wanted to let you know uh, what happened to me after I graduated in 1974. I'm like, okay, tell me the story. He goes, well, he said, "Uh, I joined the U.S. Navy. Any here? Yeah, there's two or three. Uh, The rest are Army or Marines or Air Force or Coast Guard. Um, So he said, I joined the Marines. And he said, I went into the submarine corps. uh, And he said, I spent uh, all my Navy career on submarines, uh, you know, under the ocean, uh, various oceans. And he said, "Uh, every once in a while, the the captain of the ship would give us uh, uh, bunk time to kind of hang out. I kind of chill. And so he said, you know, it wasn't much space. And he said, I would go lay in my bunk and I would think, you know, what am I going to do? Because I don't, you know, there's not a lot to do on a sub if you're just chilling. So you don't want to like push buttons or, you know, things. And so, so he said, I, uh, I had a Bible. Somebody gave me a Bible. And he said, I looked at that Bible one day, a couple hundred feet under the water, and I thought to myself, um, Marty always told me to read the Bible because I never had read it. Because I'd always ask him, have you read the Bible? No. You need to read it before you criticize it. So he never did. So he said, I, I decided I'm going to read this thing. So he said, on a U.S. Navy submarine, hundreds of feet under the water, I started reading the Bible. And he said, I'm calling you tonight to tell you I got saved. And he said, yeah, he got saved. I'm getting to 1 John in just a minute. Yeah. He said, I got saved. Uh, and he said, I'm calling you to tell you, you know, I knew what I needed to do to trust Christ. I just needed to consider the evidence. And I, I, I concluded that, yeah, Christ was the Messiah. And he was my savior. And he said, he became my savior in that bunk. And he said, I just want to let you know, I got married, I have a great wife, I have great kids. Um, he said, I took my guitar abilities, because everybody in the 60s played the guitar. you know, And a long hair, guitar, the whole shebang. And he said, I took my guitar abilities, and I use it uh, to, to lead worship at a local men's prison. And then I also teach a Bible study. I'm like, hold the phone. This is unbelievable. Um, and he said, I'm just calling to tell you what happened to me. You know, when, when, when we hung up, You know, I was all teary-eyed. I was like, sometimes when you witness to people and you think, there is no way they're ever going to come to know Christ. And then sometimes God gives you a peek. Like that night, he let me see all those years of debating, walking to school, look what I did with the gospel in Craig's life. God let me see. Uh, And uh, sometimes you might lose heart and think, I know my mom would never come to Christ, my, my sister won't, blah, blah, blah. You have no idea what God's doing. And and I wouldn't have known he got saved until we showed up at heaven and he came running toward me in heaven. That would have been the only other time I had known. Uh, and so uh, I, I submit to you uh, that there's probably a Craig or two in our church. Who are you? Uh, you're a nice guy. Uh, you got a nice family. You're educated. You're a thinker. you got lots of questions. But you realize that your position uh, of unbelief has holes in it. You just won't admit it. And so you just have all these little defenses that you've put up that you handle Christians with, and you just kind of, you know, relegate them to Never Never Land. But when you're alone at night, you know, in your bunk, uh, you have lots of questions because you're not happy, and you're not peaceful, and you're not secure, and you know it. Um, well, this chapter is for you, First John chapter 5, because First John chapter 5 is a chapter that is, uh, it, it's written to Christians who used to be Craig. And, and, and they've been infiltrated by false teachers. are trying to lead them away. That's what happens after you get saved. The devil sends people to try to lead you away from truth. And that's what happened to these churches John pastored. And so John's taken these Craig types who've left their false thinking, have got saved, come to the church, and they're growing and flourishing. The devil sends them some minions to lead them astray. And, and John says, uh, not on my watch. I'm not going to allow that as a pastor. I'm going to take you as Christians and point you to truth uh, and, and to hang, uh, hang on to your faith. And so if you're a Craig type, uh, you don't know Christ, uh, you're going to find out how to know him when we look at what John has to say in, in this great passage. So this passage is really twofold. Uh, it's, it's written to the Craig types who don't know Christ and are looking for him. The only thing is, as you look for him, he's already been looking for you. Uh, and he's, he's, he's sending out sermons that you hear, uh, Christian friends, grandparents, maybe a Christian wife who are talking to you. And all those things are going to be used by by God to present to you that you need Christ. And that's what you're going to find in this chapter. Uh, What we find here is we switch switch gears from what we had been talking about. Uh, Here we're going to talk about that Christ wants you to be uh, um, a spiritual victor and not a spiritual loser. Because there's a contrast between the two. Because there's only two types of people in the world according to the scriptures. Those who know Christ and those who don't. Those who are on the wide road to destruction, those who are on the narrow path that leads to life. Uh, it's your choice whether you want to leave the wide path and get on the narrow path to life. So in those persp- that perspective, there are those who are victors in Christ and those who are going to lose because they don't know Christ. It's a spiritual decision. And so uh, John is addressing the Christians in these churches who had gone from spiritual lost status to spiritual save status and are being deceived by teachers who are trying to shipwreck their faith. Notice what he's going to say. What he's going to say also applies to the Craig type. So the primary and secondary emphasis here. First to Christians, secondary to the Craig types. What does he say? Number one, he wants to talk first about what I would call the victor's path. So if you've gone from being spiritually lost, the loser, to spiritual victory, what was your path like Craig's to get saved? Uh, let's analyze that. Um, now, the chapter divisions in your Bible are, are put there. Uh, they're, they're not in the original Greek text. These are arbitrary insertions put to help you as a Westerner to be able to read the text. So it's kind of unfortunate that they put chapter five there because what he's talking about is still what he was talking about. So, contextually, in chapter four, he was talking about brotherly love. In fact, he talked about it twice. Prior to this, he's not moving away from that. He's just gonna look at it from a different angle uh, as you as a spiritual victor. So who's your spiritual victor should love your brothers in light of why you're a victor, what he's gonna talk about. And then if you're the Craig type, you're gonna understand what must I do to be saved as you analyze that. So let's look at it, what he has to say. Verse one, told you we were gonna t- study verse five or chapter five, verse one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is what? born of God, this is a cause-effect relationship, whoever, that could be Craig, Craig, when you believe that Jesus is the Christ, after all those years of debating Marty going to school, what happens, born of God, you're born of God, what did, he, what did he say you don't have to do well I don't have to do a bunch of rituals to get saved I don't have to say a bunch of special prayers to get saved I don't have to have parents who are Christians and, and I, I'm kind of a Christian by proxy I'm, I have to give a certain amount of money no he didn't say that he says when you believe that Jesus is the Christ that's the, the cause and the effect is you are born of God we need to analyze that uh, That's so. I, mean, I almost thought of preaching the whole sermon just on that one verse um, whoever what does that mean <laughs> Anybody, anybody. Doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your social uh, economic uh, uh, power or lack lack thereof, Uh, doesn't matter about your spiritual baggage, doesn't matter, what did he say? Whoever, whoever. Doesn't matter what your past is. I mean, I've had all kinds of seedy friends with with past. Uh, And and with my dad doing what he used to do for a living, You know that he let me have these kind of friends was amazing, like the Craig types. Because my dad was arresting people for drug possession my friends are asking me to go across the border, load the cars down with pot, drive across the border because all the agents work for my dad. They'll just wave us through, man. Oh no. They see me with you? Strip search. They're going to take the car apart. No way. And, and so if you, if you think about, you know, uh, those kind of people, they're the whoever. Whoever believes. Uh, John 3, 16. Most Christians know it. Do you know it? For God so loved the world that Whoever, whoever believes in him, what happens? Will not perish, but have everlasting life. See the cause effect? Whoever is you, whatever your baggage is, he will forgive that. He'll wash you clean, like we saw in baptism, buried with Christ, risen to Christ. He'll make you a new person. So the whoever goes to whoever, anybody, anybody. So number, that's my first point. Number two, John teaches uh, that you must be uh, born spiritually, which suggests that you were dead spiritually. And this is what the scriptures teach. He says, to be born spiritually, you must realize that you're dead in need of birth. And to be born spiritually, he, has, he says here, you must have belief in Jesus. So here's the question. Oh, this is where I can't become a Christian. Well, I got to check my brain at the door. I, I just got to just believe to believe, blind faith. No way am I going to do that. I'm a thinking person. This is Craig. Um, is that what he said? No, that's not Christian belief. J.P. Moreland, a great Christian apologist, says this about belief. He says, The fall in the Garden of Eden brought about the perversion of human faculties. But it did not destroy those faculties. Human reasoning abilities are affected but not eliminated. This can be seen in the fact that the writers of Scripture often appeal to the minds of unbelievers by citing evidence on behalf of their claims, using logical inferences and building their case and speaking in the language and thought forms of those people so they can understand. That's what it is. I mean, God gave you a mind to think, it's tainted by sin. But it doesn't mean you can't look at the evidence for the Christ and come to know him based on the evidence. But at some point in time, like Craig, after many conversations, walking to school, walking home from school, many conversations, years later, he finally looked at the evidence, read the Bible himself, considered the evidence, and realized in his bunk, Christ is the Christ. See? Because he used his mind. Uh, But reason alone doesn't save you, right? Because you have to have faith. You have to have faith that the evidence is true in a God you have not seen, an event at the cross that you did not see. I was not there for the resurrection. I must believe the evidence to be saved. I can reason my way to that, but at some point in time, I have to uh, uh, enjoy the evidence. So if you like roller coasters, you can study the roller coaster all you want, as radical as it is, upside down, shoot you through the sky, backwards, etc. You're only getting, you only enjoy the ride when by faith you step on and get strapped in, Correct. Have you, have you been to Disneyland, the, the Mount Everest ride there? Yeah. Have you done this? I got on that without any investigation. <laughs> Lame. Because it goes all throughout. The, there's a spoiler alert. It goes all throughout the mountain. It's you know, pulling G's and everything. And then it gets all the way to the top. And the, the, the track is just split and shattered. It's like you're going to be jettisoned off into nowhere. And then it just stops. I'm like, oh, wow. And then it's like, oh, no. And then there's that sickening release of the magnets and you go backwards. It's, it's terrible. I will never get on that right again. It's not God's will for my life. But if I am the reasoning kind of person, I'm going to reason like who designed this? What, how's it made? How's it go? How's it stop? Blah, blah, blah. And I finally, by faith, I get on and I get strapped in and then I take up, this is Christianity. I study, I reason, reason won't save. You're saved by grace through faith. Right? Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Third, John emphatically declares uh, that in order to believe, uh, to move from being a spiritual loser to a a victor, uh, you must be focused on the right content. What's the content? That you're focusing your faith and your reasoning on the Christ, not a Christ. If he's a Christ, it's indefinite, then all religions are true. Right? No, no, no. He is the Christ. So in the Greek grammar, this would be called a monadic use of the article, meaning the one and only, like the sun above our heads, the moon. There's not another one. So when it says that Jesus is the Christ, he's telling you that he's the fulfillment of all prophecies from the Old Testament. He fulfilled everything said that the Messiah would do. So during the Old Testament, progressive revelation, as God constantly said that the Savior is coming, he gave many prophecies to let you know that the Savior is coming. And many of these prophecies are extremely exact, pointing to the Christ. Uh, And they did this uh, thousands of years before he came. So there was a man, his name is Mark Water, and he wrote down the statistical probability of Christ fulfilling prophecies, because there's 60 of them, that show you that he is the Christ. I'll read you what he says. He says, the Bible contains hundreds of detailed prophecies. He said, there's over 60 prophecies in the Old Testament that are distinct predictions about Jesus. Some of these prophecies were made a thousand years before he lived on earth. Many of these prophecies concern his crucifixion. These prophecies were made over 500 years before the crucifixion was used anywhere in the world as a form of capital punishment, right? Wow. He then says, a scientist picked out, because I've read the book, a guy's name Stoner. He's not from California, <laughs> I'm just saying. But years ago, a scientist picked out 48 such prophecies and determined that the probability of one man randomly fulfilling them all is one in 10 to the exponent of 157, he says that is one followed by 157 zeros. Now think about this. He says your chances of winning a typical lottery jackpot is one in 108 million. Do you follow me? So that's six zeros. Are you, are you going to win the lottery? Probably not. Right? I mean, you realize all those people standing there? Probably, they're probably losers. What are the odds? One in 108 million that they're going to maybe win something? This, that's six zeros. Jesus fulfilled 48 prophecies. That's one with 157 zeros. Are you a thinking person? I am because that tells me it's not by accident he's called the Christ because he specifically fulfilled all those. So to me, I would be just ask you, like the Craig type, what are you waiting for? He is the Christ. He fulfilled all those things to the letter. Uh, and what will you do with the data? Craig eventually in his monk, realized, well, I need to embrace the Christ. And he did. The minute he did that, he was born again. That's another thing we need to study. Point four. We're still in verse one. We're moving. Um, you're born of God. And now, the, the, the verb that is used here, born of God, you can't see it in the English text. You can in the Greek text. It may not mean anything to you. I'll explain it to you. I've done it before. It's a perfect passive verb. You're like, well, that's really boring. No, it's not. It's exciting. Um, let me tell you why. Because the perfect isn't used very often in the Greek text. So when you see it, it's so significant. What does it mean? It means a past act with an abiding, uninterrupted result. Well, when it's applied to salvation, what's that mean? Well, that's why I believe in eternal security. Why? Because once you're born again, he doesn't undo it. Oh, wow. No. Check them out. Look what they're doing. We need to unbirth them, turn them back the way they were before. No, it's a, it's a perfect tense. God knows grammar. He created grammar. Born again, perfect tense, passed out with abiding result. And it's a passive verb, meaning the subject, you, is being acted on by an outside force. What's that mean? You can't save yourself. Craig couldn't save himself, right? He needed an outside force to save him. Who's that? God. God says, oh, I'll save you. I'll save you in that bunk 800 feet under the water or however deep a sub goes. I asked a Navy captain here, how deep does a U.S. submarine go? He just stared at me. And then he said, sir, I can't ask that question. This is an interesting church here. <laughs> I don't know what depth was, but, but God saved Craig. God can save you. And when he does it, it's, it's perfect, grammatically, because it's a past act with an abiding result. Uh, why do you need to be born again? Because you were dead in your sins, spiritual loser, and you needed victory. It can only come through Christ. How do I know that? Well, Paul tells you, Ephesians 2. Here's what Paul says. Speaking to the, the Ephesians, and you were dead, past tense, in the trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. In which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You lived according to whatever the world said was cool. Uh, according to the prince and power of the air—that's who, the devil. The devil. And of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Uh, And among them you too formerly lived in the lust of your flesh. Indulging in the desires of the flesh. And of the mind were by nature children of wrath. Even as the rest. You were spiritually dead under the wrath of the holy God. And you needed salvation that can only come from an outside force. God who saved you. And you turned to him. And you got born again. Um, There's another verse I want to read. Ephesians chapter 2. Go go down to verse 4. It says, but God being rich in his mercy... Uh, because of his great love with which, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together in Christ. How do he do this? By grace. His grace, you have been saved. Uh, and then he goes and says uh, in verse six, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Jesus Christ. I mean, we are here on the planet, but in heaven we're wealthy because he shares his wealth with us. And one day you're gonna see him face to face and enjoy heaven because you're born again because you were dead, you believed the evidence, you reasoned through the evidence, you embraced it by faith, and you got saved at that moment, never to be one who would lose your salvation. That's the wonder of the, of the text and the importance of grammar. So I ask you again, are you born again? Are you born again? If you, There's only two kinds of people in the world, those who are born again, those who are not, those who are victors in Christ, and those who are spiritually losing it because they're making the wrong decisions. Now, let's go back to the text. That was verse one. Need to go look at verse two. You ready? Okay. I almost asked if you had any questions, but I can't do that. But moving to verse 2. It says, by this we know that, uh, that we love the, uh, love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments, well, they're not burdensome. So <laughs> think about this. If you love the Holy Father who sent the Son, the Messiah, you by definition love his spiritual children. So let's argue from the lesser to the greater. Uh, How many are parents? I am. Okay. You love your children? Why aren't the hands going up? No hand went up. Okay, wait. So do you love your children? Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Um, That was pretty funny. No one raised their hand for the second question. Um, Yeah, you love your children. It just just comes naturally. Now, here's the question. If you have children, do they love each other? Oh, yeah. Yeah. They totally get along. Mm Mm-hmm. I was a boy between two girls. It was terrible but i could never complain cuz my dad had 10 sisters. He would always look at me and go, "Son, what are you worried about?" Anyway, he was from South Carolina. So, i never had an argument, but but and it's tough. So, uh, brothers and sisters should by definition love each other. Now, sometimes when they're younger, they don't, right? Did you fight with your brother and sister? mm-hmm, I did. You know, I did. And they fought with me. Uh, you know, I was trying to be a Christian, and, and sometimes, you know, they just kind of pushed the envelope. So, um, <laughs> and my sister Marla that passed away a couple of years ago from ovarian cancer, she didn't come clean of some of the things she did to me until we were, like, in our 50s. <laughs> and she was just, like, confess to my dad, hey, remember the time at the table when I stabbed Marty with a fork? And, you know, and you thought he stabbed me first? No, I really started it. I'm like, Anyway, anyway, I, I gotta. It's cathartic being up here. Let me tell you. So, the point being, if you have children, they should love each other by definition of the fact that they're brothers and sisters. Sometimes they don't really start loving each other until they get older. They grow up and they they do they love each other. Um, that's his point. So, what's the point? From the lesser to the greater. If an earthly father has children who love each other, then what should be the arrangement between the heavenly father and his spiritual children? Well, they should love each other. Why? Because they love their dad. They love their dad. Who's their dad? The father. Uh, And and so you have to ask yourself, you know, do I love the other brothers and sisters in Christ around me? Do I love them? Why should I? Because we're from the same spiritual father. Do you love them? So he says, uh, how do you know if you love God? I mean, that's the question. Two greatest commandments. Love Lord your God with all all your heart, soul, and mind. And then number two, neighbor as yourself. So how do you know if you love God? Well, he gives you the litmus test here. How do you know if you are a spiritual victor that loves God? Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God. And how do we know that? Well, we observe his commandments. Commandments, uh, singular or plural? Simple question, softball question. It's not singular. It's plural. (laughs) I know it's early. You get a pass in this service. It's early. He says, you know you love God when you keep his commandments. Ooh, that's plural. Okay, this, this leads to a question. Because I, I tried this out on my Greek uh, program that I use for preparing sermons. Like I typed in all the, all the different functions that you have to do to bring up imperatives, imperative forms. And, and you can specify in this book or these books. So I, I set the parameters for the Gospels. How many imperatives are there from Jesus in the Gospels? And I hit search. Whoa, there's a lot of them. A man could easily sit at his, at his desk looking at these, you know, having lunch and go, no way. I can't do all those. How do you know if you love God? If you keep the commandments. Can you think of a couple of commandments from Jesus off the top of your head? Love, the Lord your God. love him with all you got. What else? Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. What else? That's it? Two? <laughs> There's a lot of them, isn't there? There's a lot of them. You can go through. I challenge you. Go Take the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, his first sermon on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Go through the Sermon on the Mount and ask yourself, am I adhering to the commandments Jesus gave here? Because when I adhere to those commandments, by definition, I'm showing that I love the Father. If I look at them and go, I'm not doing that, then I, by definition, I'm showing I don't love the Father because you have a free will as a Christian to be obedient or disobedient. So... Uh, That is a tall order. How in the world are you going to go about obeying those commandments? There's a lot of commandments. Uh, Well, he says here, they're not burdensome. So go back to your earthly father. When he gave you his commandments, because every dad has commandments, don't they? Did yours? Mine did. You know, these are the rules of the house. This is how we roll. I didn't look at the things that my dad said to us and thought, that's just totally unreasonable. Could we talk about that? Not when he's usually in uniform with a weapon, you know, going to work, you know. Uh, son, these this are the rules of the house today, you know. I'm like, okay, great, dad. Uh, I never looked at him and think it was like a giant rucksack on my back that weighed 300 pounds. No, it's like, okay, that's what my dad wants. I'm going to give it my best shot. So he says, when you look at God's commandments, they're not burdensome. Why? Because when you obey the commandment of Christ, you know in your heart you just did what was right. Because when you don't obey, you know. You, you don't feel right because you're being disobedient. So when you obey his commands, they're not burdensome. In fact, Jesus is going to say, uh, uh, you know, take my yoke upon you. You know, follow after me. My yoke is light. You know, your, your load is heavy. Take my commands and obey them. And when you obey them, you're going you're gonna to realize just how great it is to follow me. So I have to ask a question. Are you showing the father that you love him because you're obeying well, what he said you should do? Because when you do that, you by definition are showing that you love Christians around you. How's that work? Well, When I obey his commands, all that they are, those transform me into his image. And I, by definition, through that transformation, love everybody around me. Because I'm living the way he called me to live. Imagine if everybody in our country was doing this imagine. Point number two, verses four to five, that, that's the, the path of the, of the victor. Are you on that path? I am. Are you? You get on that path by getting born again. Number two, number two uh, the victor's power is verses four to five. He says, for whatever, not whoever, we'll come back to that in a minute. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Another cause effect relationship. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is he talking about? Our, our faith. And he says in verse five, and who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the son of God, that he's deity. Because the Gnostics, the false teachers were telling him, you need to deny the deity of Christ. Um, and he said, no, 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 no. Uh, you overcome false thinking in the, in the world uh, when you come to know that Jesus is the son of God. He talks here about the, the world uh, here is uh, cosmos. Uh, that's the Greek word. Is the world, And he says, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Uh, why does he say whatever instead of whoever? That's interesting. I think it's interesting because he's been talking about whoever believes. Now he's talking about whatever. Why did he switch? Because now he's going to talk about not the importance of you per se, but the importance of your faith. What is it that overcomes the wicked world in which you live in? And that's not to say there's not great things about the world. I love the world. I mean, that we live in, that God put us in. But there's evil here. And we all know that. That tempts you and pressurizes the world you live in. And he says, uh, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. So the whatever is your faith in the living God helps you to overcome the world in which you live. I mean, think about the the world. Because he says, uh, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, your faith. So think about it this way. When you became a Christian, like think of a Craig in the, the bunk of that submarine, when he trusted Christ as his savior, that, that moment, he was immediately saved for all time. And I'll see him in heaven one day. Uh, when, when that happened, he at that moment overcame the evil world. I mean, the pressure of all of his buddies when they got off the submarine at some port to do things they shouldn't do, uh, if they were married or et cetera. I mean, I've heard all the stories. He wouldn't do those things. Why? Because he, he is positionally holy in Christ. First Corinthians one thirty. His faith has overcome the power of the world to motivate him to live like the world. I mean, think about it. Uh, you go into a casino. What do they want there? <laughs> you haven't been in a casino because you're Christians. Okay, cool. Uh, <laughs> what are they wanting there? Your money, and they're promising you that, oh, you're gonna walk out of here just loaded. No, you're not. They're, they're gonna take all your money. That's, that's what they're there for. Uh, somebody that gets lost in pornography, they're promised certain kinds of things by getting into it, and, and eventually it's a dark well. There's no bottom to it, and it controls your entire life and destroys you. I mean, you can pick what does a, 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 a godless, non-Christian sociology professor want from students to abide by his worldview, how dare them come up with a Christian worldview when it comes to sociology? Because I know because the students write, write me and talk to me. It's like, wow, I'm going to probably get nailed by taking this Christian viewpoint. Why The world wants you to force you into this evil uh, mold. But when you become a Christian, your faith overcomes that. That's your position in Christ. And it also affects your, your walk. So positionally, your faith overcame the world. You're now a victor. But then there's that practical walk that we've talked about, of living out your faith so that when you live out your faith, you overcome the world by uh, by obeying the commandments of Christ. So let's focus on one commandment of Christ. He's told us regarding our enemies, we are to love them. Love your enemies. We're commanded to do good unto them who say evil things about you, your enemies. We're supposed to be able to live a transformed life to love those who are enemies. If you can love your enemy... Uh, You can definitely love a Christian brother or a sister in Christ. I introduce you to two enemies uh, that were in my first church when I was a young man. And I don't have their pictures, so these are not them. They're just pictures to represent kind of them. So just kind of go with the artistic nature of this. Uh, We'll say the guy on the left, the GI, is Ivan Harper was his name. Uh, Ivan Harper was a U.S. Army soldier uh, in my first church in Arizona. Um, One day, uh, he was walking through the woods with two friends. Uh, and, they, you know, and they're in a battlefield, uh, and the, they're walking. It was a beautiful day, uh, and they didn't know that there was a German machine gun nest up on a hill. And so that machine gun team opened up and sprayed them, uh, instantly killed his two friends, but no bullet hit him, and he was in the middle. So he asked me one day, how, how did that happen then when the machine gun sprayed us? How'd the bullet skip me? So he said, I'm standing there. My two friends are now dead next to me. And he said, all of a sudden, the Germans leave their machine gun nest and they walk down toward me. They totally outnumbered me. So he said, I dropped my M1 uh, and, they, and they captured me. Uh, he said, I became a prisoner of war. And he said, uh, they eventually put me on a, on a, a train, a rail car. Uh, and he said, uh, he was a little short guy. He's about 5'5". Five five. Uh, and he said, I, you know, I'm always on like a six foot four guy. So he said to get on this moving train, uh, everybody was just jumping on there. But he said, it was too high for me. So he said, I was on a hard time getting up there. So he said, I grabbed the rail, uh, to jump up and I couldn't quite make it. And they're kind of dragging me down the the track. And so he said, a a German soldier came and took his Mauser rifle and hit me in the back and snapped off two fingers. Okay. And I'll explain the story to you in a minute. So he said, I jumped into the train in a holding my hand, total pain, and he said, when I wound up at the, at the uh, prison, uh, they put me in the infirmary. And he said, I was laying there uh, you know, as they were working on my fingers. Because um, I asked him, Where did your fingers go? And he's telling me this story. And so he said, As I was laying there in bed, I heard a bunch of commotion grenades going off, a bunch of noise. Uh, and he said, uh, Russians overran that prison and liberated us. <laughs> he said, I knew I wasn't liberated when the head Russian officer came into the infirmary with a pistol. And he came over to me didn't speak any english and was very animated and speaking to me and he said i just kept saying hey it's great to meet you thanks for liberating us blah 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 and he said the guy points to my watch on the nightstand and he said yeah that's a nice watch i enjoy it it's beautiful you know the guy's like puts his hand on his pistol and says like no you know give me that he went through and robbed every man every u.s soldier in there the russian soldier so if anybody did not like russians Soldiers or Germans. Guess who it was? Ivan. Now I present to you the other soldier. Uh, The other soldier, Gerhard Schirling. Gerhard Schirling uh, was another parishioner at my church. He was a Nazi. He was a German infantryman. He fought U.S. soldiers. These guys were in my church. And guess what? They loved each other. They loved each other. They could have harbored resentment against each other. They could have said all kinds of mean things to each other, but both of them loved each other. I know because I watched them in action. When I heard both of their stories, I eventually buried Gerhard Schirling, died in a car wreck one day in Tucson. Uh, they, They respected each other, but in Christ, they had peace because they learned the mandate to love my enemy. See? Where did that kind of love come from? Well, from God. From God. Do you love like that? Because that kind of love can only come from God. Uh, And when you are a Christian on the path of of salvation, the Lord gives you the spirit of God to help you love like Ivan and Gerhard loved each other. So if the Lord is your savior, all those sitting around you that know Christ should be the object of your love because they're God's children. And if they're not a Christian, well, you should really love them because that might be an enemy that needs the love of Christ in their life. If you don't know Christ today and you're a Craig... Well, I don't care where you are. If you can get saved in a bunk 800 feet down in a a sub, you can get saved in your living room, in your car, wherever you are. Just ask God, please save me, and he will. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wonder of the cross. It transforms people, transforms warriors uh, into peaceful people that love each other, does wonderful things. May we relish in the fact that we have a great example in Christ our Lord of how to treat those about us. Thank you for our church, for the love that is here. And may we continue to exhibit that love to others about us. Uh, and we thank you for the scriptures and their clarity. And we pray for the correct types, that they might come to know you, the Savior, the true Christ. Amen.